Well, I will tell you what we've been talking about and what we're going to do today, but let me tell you what we'll be doing next week, because we've had these three weeks of kind of an interlude between series, and we've had these breakout sessions for the Young Marrieds and the Home Builders and the Crossroads class, but next week we'll all be back together. We'll all be in here, and we will be in here for a series that I thought was on the screen, but it is uh, How to Overcome Fear and Anxiety, and that will go for seven weeks, starting next week in this hour in this room. And for that, I encourage you to invite someone to come to help you with that invitation. We have printed invites at our resource table, and so uh, before you leave today, grab a handful of those and think about somebody to give those to uh, today. But I think that will be a helpful series for all of us. Uh, but uh, helpful or not, we're starting it next week for seven weeks in this room. Okay? Today, we are going to uh, finish the series we started a couple of weeks ago on what I just call first-order doctrines. And for those that haven't been here, let me uh, briefly explain what that means. It means that there are teachings, doctrines, <clears throat> taught in Scripture that are essential to Christianity. And those are called by various names. They're called essential, fundamental doctrines, sometimes called first order. But these are your top shelf doctrines, apart from which you, you cannot be a Christian. And so these are things like who Christ is, <clears throat> that he is God, and that he has come as man, that he was truly God and truly man in one unique person, and that he is the only means of, of salvation. That was achieved by his, his work on the cross, and so another first-order doctrine would be the atonement. Uh, him, Christ, atoning for our sins because we can't atone for our own. So the person and work of Christ would be a first-order doctrine. But another first-order doctrine, and in fact, uh, my own view is primary to all first-order doctrines even, is the doctrine of Scripture. Because the truth is we learn about the person and work of Christ in Scripture. And so if we don't have a proper understanding of what Scripture is, then it endangers even a, a, an important teaching like who Christ is and what Christ did. And so we have seen that, and our church believes, that the Bible is God's inspired, that is, it came from God. And having come from God, it is a second thing. It is infallible, that is, it has complete authority in everything that it affirms. So it's inspired, and it's infallible, but it is also inerrant. That is, without error in everything that it says. So that's a first-order doctrine, and from that flow, things like what it teaches about Christ and about salvation and so on. So there are these this category, first-order, essential, fundamental doctrines, apart from which you cannot be a Christian, and the denial of which, then, puts you in a category that has various names. Uh, apostate would be one. An apostate is someone who has fallen short of the faith. That's literally what the word means. And so apostasy is denying something essential to the Christian faith. So you can have all sorts of people with disagreements on all sorts of lesser issues who are still Christians. Because they believe the first order doctrines. They believe the, the faith. So that raises then a question, well, what about second order doctrines? Or third-order doctrines, are they then unimportant? And I've been trying to make the case that, by their very nature, they're not as important as a first-order doctrine. That's why we number them. That's why we call some essential and fundamental. That in itself suggests that they're the most important, that they're primary. But it doesn't follow, therefore, that these things are unimportant. Just because they're less important, they are less important, doesn't mean they're unimportant. And I've been trying to show some ways in which some second-order doctrines could be quite important because they often have connections they relate to these first-order things. And so I gave an example two weeks ago when we started. What one believes about the end, the end times, sometimes called prophecy, fancy word is eschatology. What one believes about that is not a first-order doctrine. People have lots of different views about what's going to happen at the end, and yet they're still Christians. They're still going to heaven, we'll be in heaven with them. And, you know, somebody's going to be surprised <laughs> as to how that all came down, <laughs> because we've argued about it. 
But it doesn't make one a Christian or not a Christian, but that means it's unimportant. I've tried to make the case two weeks ago that it's still important for reasons that I'll review in just a moment. But before I do, I have this cup of coffee with liquid that all of you have been looking at for the last two weeks and now you are fixated on again this week. Is he going to actually take a drink of that coffee or not? And if he does not take a drink of the coffee, can he make it through the entire lesson without spilling any of the coffee? This is so important to someone in our class that they brought me this. That's steam coming out of it. And it's supposed to be coffee, and it's a cup that I can hold without spilling. Thank you, Sandra. But I'm going with the real deal. I'll take a drink now. You all happy? Now listen to what I say for the rest of the, the lesson, okay? So two weeks ago, end time stuff. And part of the end time stuff is what you believe about something called the millennium. If you were here then, you know millennium means it's Latin for a thousand. And there's this notion in the Bible, Revelation chapter 20, uh, the third to the last chapter of the Bible, that mentions a thousand years six times in that, in that passage. That something happens for a thousand years. Well, it's my understanding that that something is the kingdom, the millennium, a thousand year kingdom. And it's the kingdom that if you read the first part of your Bible, the Old Testament, the prophets would look forward to. And they would talk about a time when the lion will lay with the lamb, for instance. And the, the, the natural order has been transformed in this marvelous kingdom. And it's going to last for this thousand-year period, after which comes what we call the eternal state, or what most of us just know as heaven. So I believe that there's going to be this millennium, that there will be one, and further, that Christ will be the center of that kingdom having returned prior to the beginning of the thousand-year kingdom, which means, I believe, in the pre-millennial return of Christ. Or, if you want a fancy name, then I am a pre-millennialist. Christ comes back pre-before the millennium. But you have people who don't think there's going to be a millennium. There's just this age and there's the next age. And the thousand years is not a literal thousand years, say, say they. So they're not pre-millennialists, they are ah-millennialists. Ah meaning no, no millennium. And then there are some folks, not many these days, but uh, there are folks who are post-millennialists. That is, the kingdom is being set up now, it will continue to advance, and Christ will come after the kingdom has advanced to the point that we have this sort of age of Aquarius uh, utopian set up, and then he returns. As I say, not many of those. It's mostly premillennial and amillennial. Now, can you be, then let's just say amillennial and be a Christian? Absolutely. There are some terrific people, terrific Bible teachers, who are, you know, amillennial. They don't believe what I believe about the millennium. But does it matter? And I tried to make the case two weeks ago. If you want to listen to it, all of our stuff is online. You can listen to it. But I tried to make the case that it does uh, have the danger of affecting our view of the faithfulness of the promises of God and and the literalness of the promises that God has made. And we looked at some of those in Genesis chapter 12, Genesis chapter 15, that God has promised land to his people that they have never acquired. And so the question then is, is that going to happen or has that been, been done away? Has that been abrogated somehow? Our amillennial friends use language Uh, the more thoughtful among them try to avoid this language, but it's really unavoidable, replacement theology. The church has replaced Israel, and therefore those promises made in Genesis 12 and Genesis 15 and so on have been replaced by the church. And so there's not going to be, say they, a time when there is this kingdom with, uh, with these boundaries that God promised to his people. And so that is, again, not something that will determine if you get to heaven or not, but is it, a, is it an important issue? Well, I think it does have import with regard to how we view those promises. Are they literal or not? And I made the case to you that all of the promises that have been fulfilled so far have all been fulfilled literally. You know, when, when the Bible says a virgin will conceive and bear a son, guess what? That's what happened. When the Bible says that Jesus would be born in a particular place in Micah 5.2, Bethlehem, that's what happened. 
So if all those that we know of have been fulfilled literally, it follows to me that those still to come will be followed, will, will be fulfilled literally as well. We looked at Romans chapter 11, which uh, says that God has caused a hardening to Israel in part, but only until the full number of the Gentiles has come in, and then all Israel will be saved. He will turn his attention back to those promises made, and I believe he will fulfill them in the millennium. All right, so it's not a first-order doctrine, but that doesn't mean it's unimportant. Last week, we looked at another one. It's not a first-order doctrine, but it's still important, and that is the issue of how you see uh, gifts of revelation, prophecy. Do we have prophets today, people to whom God speaks, and then they in turn speak to us? Well, there are lots of good people who believe that. Uh, and some of them write some very good materials, and I benefit from them and, and all of that. If nothing else, they believe that's a possibility. Even if it doesn't happen much, it's a possibility. That God could give a message to somebody today. There's ongoing revelation to people in the form of, of prophecy. Well, it's not a first-order doctrine, but it does affect, I think, a first-order doctrine, your view of the sufficiency of Scripture. Does the Bible have everything you need? Or do you need an additional message or messages from God, either directly to you or from somebody else? And that affects, at least, your view of the sufficiency of Scripture. I tried to make the case last week as to why I believe that those gifts have have ceased. And it's because the guys who were able to do them and oversee their exercise are dead. They all died in the first century. They were the apostles. They were the twelve. As we saw last week, when you're known as the twelve, you're a pretty exclusive group. When when they don't have to say who you are, they just say the twelve, and everybody's supposed to know who they are. That's a pretty exclusive group. And we saw several passages that show that the apostles had abilities that not everybody else had. And even today, our friends who say, you know, some of those things they did we could still do, have to admit that there's at least a few things we can't do. And we saw that together last week. One, they were able to write scripture. And for 2,000 years, nobody's been able to add a 67th book. So there's a sense in which all of us believe that some things that happened 2,000 years ago don't happen now. Right? They've ceased. They've stopped. No more books of the Bible. If somebody came to you and said, I've got another book of the Bible, you would be rightly wary of that. Correct? We haven't added one, we're not going to add one, because the people who could write it or oversee its writing are dead. But even our friends who say, well, there's still this continuation, they have to admit that. And they also have to admit that there are things those guys did, other things those guys did we can't do, like raise people from the dead. You know, so you got Peter being able to do that until a teenage dead girl arise, and she arrives. Nobody can do that today. Because they had abilities nobody else has. Now, the minute that you establish that there are things that they could do that we can't do, you have become, at least in part, a, and here's the fancy term, a cessationist. Certain things have ceased. They've stopped. And the other term is a continuationist. These things continue as they did in the first century. And so you're going to have to make a decision as to whether or not you're a cessationist or a continuationist. I'm a cessationist. And even those who try to be continuationists have to be cessationists in some senses. Otherwise, you're going to have to come up with some more books of the Bible. Otherwise, you're going to have to prove to me that you can do what those guys did by raising people from the dead. Okay? It's not a first-order doctrine. It's not something that will determine whether or not you go to heaven. But it's important whether or not people are getting messages from God and whether am I supposed to listen to these messages that these folks get from God. And so in view of all of that, the more cautious continuationists among us, and there are lots of people who want to be a continuationist, but they recognize the problems I'm laying out. And so they have said, okay, fine, you're right. No more apostles. There is no more gift of apostle today. They admit that. Well, once they admit that, 
That's a, an admission that spiritual giftedness, now hear this, in the church today differs from spiritual giftedness in the early church, doesn't it? Right? They've already sort of given up the farm. And they kind of have to give up the farm because there's no way to get around the fact that the apostles could do things we can't do. Further, it also seems to lead necessarily to the admission that the signs of an apostle. If there are no apostles today, then the signs of an apostle probably aren't around either. Now, last week we saw that the Bible talks about the signs of an apostle. 2 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 12. And Paul defends the fact that he's an apostle by saying there in 2 Corinthians 12, 12, the signs of an apostle I did among you. And they were signs and wonders and miracles. Well, if there aren't any apostles, then it would seem that the things that signify an apostle are not here as well. And that leads me to another topic I'd like to talk about. And that is, what about, okay, that's prophecy, people getting messages from God. But what about the other things that happened in the first century that in the time that you've been at our church, you've never seen happen? And that is things like speaking in tongues. What about that? Because there is that in the Bible. So should that be going on today? Does that continue or has that ceased? Well, we want to take some time to to take a look at that, okay? And so turn to Acts chapter 2 in your Bible. Acts chapter 2. And as you do, I keep saying here that, look, the people who disagree with me maybe disagree with you, maybe you disagree with me about this stuff. It doesn't mean we hate them. It doesn't mean that we're not going to heaven. I want us to have that kind of mentality in our church, that people can disagree without then uh, condemning someone. We can disagree to disagree, particularly about second and third order doctrines. But that doesn't mean they're completely unimportant. Now, let me read this joke to you before we look at Acts chapter 2 and delve into speaking in tongues. But, you know, not everybody takes this sort of charitable view that I take. Some people take any difference as a difference of life and death, eternal life and eternal death. And so the story is a mountain climber was traversing a perilous cliff when he heard a panicked shout. It seems another climber had become trapped in a cleft down below. He needed someone to rescue him. Just a minute, said his rescuer. I'll throw you a rope. Thank the Lord you came along, came the reply. Oh, you're a Christian, the rescuer said, throwing him the rope? That's great. So am I. Catholic or Protestant? Protestant. He answered, tying the rope around his waist. That's great. So am I. Said the rescuer as he began to pull the man up from the rope. Methodist or Baptist? Baptist, the fellow answered. That's great. So am I. General Baptist or particular Baptist? Particular Baptist, he answered. That's great, so am I. Particular Baptist Eastern Confession or particular Baptist Western Confession? Western Confession, the fellow answered as he got near the top. That's great, so am I. Now, particular Baptist Western Confession Reform of 87 or particular Baptist Western Confession Reform of 95? Reform of 95, he answered. Die, you heretic scum. (laughs) And he let the rope go. (laughs) Now, it's extreme, but it gets that way sometimes. All right? Some things are more important than others. Now, where's where's the speaking in tongues thing that fit in? Acts chapter chapter 2. In Acts chapter 2, what you have is the apostles and other first followers of Jesus gathered in an upper room. And they are waiting. And what are they waiting for? Why are they there and why are they waiting? Well, we won't take the time to go there, but if you were to go back to Luke chapter 24, Luke 24, at the end of Luke 24, which is the last chapter in Luke, so at the very end of Luke's gospel, it's in red letters if you have a red letter edition. And it's Jesus talking, and Jesus is giving final instructions to his apostles. And at the end of Luke 24, he says to them, I want you to go, and I want you to 
go to the city and wait until you receive power from on high to begin the mission that I'm giving you. So at the end of Jesus' earthly ministry, he's already died on the cross, risen from the grave. He's, he showed himself uh, for, for uh, 40 days, and he tells them, I want you to go and, and wait. Well, when you come to Acts then, you find them where Luke left off in Luke 24. Now, who wrote Acts, by the way? It was Luke. So Acts is really kind of the second act of Luke. It picks up where Luke left off. In Luke 24, Jesus says, go to the city. Where's the city? What city are we talking about? Jerusalem. And wait. So then Luke picks it up in Acts chapter uh, Acts chapter 2, but go back to Acts chapter 1 for a second. Verse 1. In my former book, Theophilus. Now, what would the former book be? That would be Luke. And, and how do I know he's referring to Luke? Well, one, he mentions Theophilus here. And if you were to go back to Luke chapter 1 and verse 4, guess who the Gospel of Luke was written to? Theophilus, same, same person. So that's one of the ways we know Luke wrote both of these. They're addressed to the same person. And in my former book, the Gospel of Luke, also written to Theophilus, verse 1, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up to heaven after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. After his suffering, he showed himself to these men and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of, of God. And so, then you go down to verse 8, and Luke recounts what Jesus told them. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. You will be my witnesses, beginning in Jerusalem, then Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And verse 9, after this, he was taken up before their eyes, and a cloud hid him from their sight. So Luke is saying, okay, this is what happened when last I left you in my former book. Now we're going to pick up the, the rest of the, the story. And when you come to Acts chapter 2, you find them indeed in Jerusalem waiting. Verse 1. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Doing what? Waiting. Now, when the day of Pentecost came, Luke, who wrote this, gives us that as a time marker to tell us how long they've been waiting. So let's do the math here a little bit so that you have an idea of how long these guys have been waiting. Jesus died at Passover. You all remember that? And one of the feasts in the Old Testament was something called Pentecost, which occurred 50 days after Passover. That's why it's called Pentecost. Pentecost means 50. So Pentecost occurs 50 days after Passover, or the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2 is 50 days after Jesus died. Now, we know about some of those 50 days. We know that for 40 of those days, Jesus was showing himself to people. It says that, right? So as we try to account for these 50 days, 40 of them are accounted for by Jesus showing himself alive by many convincing proofs. And another three are accounted for because he was in the grave. So you've got 50 days to account for, 43 of them we know about. These guys have been waiting for about seven days. They've been waiting for about a week. So when the day of Pentecost, 50 days after Passover, chapter 2 and verse 1, fully came. They've been waiting, as Jesus instructed, for this power. Suddenly, verse 2, a sound like a blowing, the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven, filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. So, if anyone says to you, is speaking in tongues in the Bible, the answer is, of course, yes. Here's, here it is, and, and a few other places, as we'll see. So it's speaking in tongues in the Bible. That's not the issue. It's in the Bible. The question is, what does the Bible teach about it? So it is, it is most definitely in the Bible. And they began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now verse 5. There were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. When they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment. Now this is key. Each one of them heard them speaking in his own language. Now, 
Let me just stop here and say, am I making anything up? Am I doing any gymnastics to say that speaking in tongues is a language that people understood? Is that what's going on here? We hear these people speaking in our language. There were people from all nations because of this Feast of Pentecost gathered at Jerusalem. And we hear these guys who normally would not be speaking our language, they're speaking our language. So whatever speaking in tongues is, it's people speaking in a language that other people understand. Says verse 6. It's a language that folks understand. Now indeed, it was miraculously given here. There's no doubt about that. But it was a language they understood. Utterly amazed, verse 7, they ask, are not all these men who are speaking Galileans? How is each of them, how is it that each of us hears them in his own native language? And then it goes on to give these languages that they were, they were speaking. And so it is very clear. Now, this is very important. Acts chapter 2 is the first mention in the entire Bible of the phenomenon of speaking in tongues. The first time this is ever recorded as having happened is what you just read. And the first time it ever happened, it was a language that people understood. We all good with that? Do you think it's possible that over time, especially if you have about, say, 30 years, that over a few decades, that something that started a particular way could be distorted to become something else? Well, sure, we know this, right? Because think about something else that was implemented around the same time as speaking in tongues happened. Just a few weeks earlier, Jesus had sat... Uh, with his first followers for the Lord's table, the Last Supper. He, he instituted communion. But over a few decades, did communion get distorted? Well, if you were to read the book of First Corinthians, you would find that these guys had messed up all sorts of things, including the practice of the Lord's table. We won't take the time to turn there now, but in First Corinthians chapter 11, 1 Corinthians 11, Paul, who wrote 1 Corinthians, in the early 60s, so about 30 years after Jesus instituted the Lord's Day, he's having to write to correct their abuses of the Lord's Day. Now here's why that's important. Because he's also going to have to write to correct their abuses of speaking in tongues. Over 30 years, things have gotten distorted. So you read of speaking in tongues actually happening in Acts chapter 2. And when it actually happened, it was people speaking a language that other people understood. Now you're going to read about it again. But when you read about it again, it's 30 years later. And 30 years later, it ain't what it was on the day of Pentecost. We'll see that in a second. So we're going to go to 1 Corinthians 14 in just a bit. But... In the book of Acts, you have this phenomenon of speaking in tongues happening, spoken of directly three times. Acts chapter 2 is the first, and then probably indirectly a fourth time. So let me just tell you what those four are, tell you why I think that happened four times, that Luke records it four times in the book of Acts, and then we'll go to 1 Corinthians 14. You all remember that when the church begins... The church is now going to welcome in not just Jews, but it's going to welcome people from... Remember Jesus gave his final instructions. He said, start at Jerusalem, Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. When Matthew records Jesus' final instructions in Matthew 28, he, he has Jesus saying this, go and make disciples of, of what? Do you guys remember? All nations. So now... The mission of God is now expanding from one nation, Israel, and one ethnicity, Jews, to all nations and all people. Well, if you're a Jew, and you've been uh, part of God's chosen people, and it's all been focused exclusively on you, all the, all the apostles are Jewish, Jesus is Jewish, and now we're going to go to all nations, you're going to need some sign that says... These people are, are part of what we are. And so in the book of Acts, you have four occurrences of speaking in tongues. 
And interestingly, all four times you have a different group of people that the gospel has come to. In Acts 2, it's, it's, it's Jews. So this spirit is poured out on the Jews at Pentecost in Jerusalem. But then you go to Acts chapter 8, and in Acts chapter 8, it's Samaritans. Now, who cares about, what about the Samaritans? Well, what are the Samaritans? They are half-breed Jews. Remember, Jews hate Samaritans because they're half-breed. This is why there is a parable called the parable of the good Samaritan. Because Jesus is telling the story to these Jewish religious leaders, you guys wouldn't help this guy who's been beaten and left for dead, but a Samaritan helped him. That stung big time because they hate Samaritans. In John chapter 4, when Jesus speaks with a woman at the well, a Samaritan woman, it's scandalous. So is the gospel for, yes, the Jews, Acts 2, but is it also for half-breed Jews? And how will we know? They have the same spirit we have. Because they were able to speak in tongues. The same way we did. Then you get a third group in Acts chapter 10. Acts 10. In Acts chapter 10, you have the gospel coming to a Gentile named Cornelius. But the Bible tells us in Acts chapter 10 that Cornelius was not just any Gentile. He was a God-fearer. Now, when it says he was a God-fearer, you can just easily read that and you can say he's just somebody who fears God. We sometimes use that phrase to say so-and-so is a God-fearing person. But God-fearer was actually a name for a category of people who were Gentiles, but they practiced Judaism. They're Gentiles by birth. But they've been, the fancy term is proselytes. They've converted to Judaism. So who's going to be involved in this new thing called the church? Well, the Jews. What about the Samaritans? Okay, the Samaritans. Well, what about the God-fearers? What about these Gentile proselytes? Okay, them too. And you have this phenomenon of them receiving the Spirit in Acts chapter 10. And the fourth and final one is in Acts chapter 19. And in Acts 19, guess who receives the Spirit? It's just your common, everyday, run-of-the-mill Gentile. Not a God-fearer, not a Samaritan, not a Jew, a Gentile. That would be you. That would be me. In Acts 19, in Ephesus. Four occurrences to four different groups of people to signify that this thing is going to all nations. Now that all happened... You know, in the first years of the of the church, the book of Acts records the establishment of the churches in various cities and Paul's missionary journeys to do that. You guys are familiar with that, right? But then you move forward. Now, fast forward a few decades, and you come to 1 Corinthians. And Paul, who wrote a number of these letters in your New Testament, including 1 Corinthians, is having to write a lot of these letters because... Over time, problems develop, and he's writing back. Much of what you have in your New Testament is Paul writing back to churches, many of them churches he established himself decades earlier, to address problems that had arisen in those, in those churches. 1 Corinthians is one such letter that he wrote. And he's going to address all these, these problems. And uh, some of you have heard me go through this before, so forgive me, but just so you don't think I'm making it up, Chapter 1 and verse 10, Paul says, I have heard from some people in Chloe's household that there are factions among you, divisions among you. And so he begins to write for a few chapters based on information he got from his snitches from Chloe's household. There are divisions among you, and so I'm going to write to you for several chapters about why there should not be these divisions. But then you come to chapter 7 and verse 1, and, he, and, it, and there's a transition there. He's been writing about these things he heard apparently through Chloe's household, about divisions and about them taking to each other to court and about sexual immorality in the church. He addresses that in chapter 5, chapter 6, going to court with each other. Then you come to chapter 7 and verse 1, and it says, Now about the matters 
you wrote about. Is that what it says? And you see it says colon, has a colon after that? Now about the things you wrote about. So I've addressed the stuff that I heard from Chloe's household. But there's also the stuff that you all wrote to me about. So apparently some people wrote and said, Chloe didn't tell you the half of it. It's much worse than she said. And so wrote and said, we got problems with chapter 7, divorce and remarriage. What do we do with that? We got people in our church who got came to Christ, but they've got a spouse who still goes to the pagan temple in the in the middle of Corinth. What do we do? Should we stay married? Should we not? He addresses that in chapter 7. Chapter 8 and verse 1 says, Now about food sacrificed to idols. Notice the same phrase. Chapter 7 and verse 1, Now about the matters you wrote about. Chapter 8 and verse 1, Now about food sacrificed. In other words, I'm, going, I'm ticking through a list here. So I addressed the first one, divorce. Now I'm going to address the next one. Food sacrificed to idols. Because not only does my spouse go to the pagan temple, we're still eating meat that we buy at the pagan temple. Because it's cheap. Because after they sacrifice us to some pagan god, they sell it. And we buy it and we make it for dinner. Should I be eating this now that I'm a Christian? That's what chapter 8 is about. That's what chapter 9 is about. That's what chapter 10 is about. It goes on for 3. And then you come to chapter 11 and it's about the Lord's table. And Paul says, uh, you know, you're getting drunk at the Lord's table. They were. So this just gives you an idea of where the Corinthians were. You're getting drunk. He corrects that abuse. And then you come to chapter 12 and verse 1. And notice how it starts. Now about. Right? Chapter 7, verse 1, now about the matters you wrote about. Chapter 8, verse 1, now about food sacrifice idols. Chapter 12, verse 1, now about spiritual gifts. And chapters 12, 13, and 14 are devoted to this issue of spiritual gifts. And in particular, chapter 14 is devoted to the gift of speaking in tongues. Now, remember the first time this ever happened, Acts chapter 2, it was a language people understood. And so here's what Paul says in verse 18. 1 Corinthians 14 and verse 18. <clears throat> I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. Well, not only is speaking in tongues something we should do, Paul did it. Well, when Paul says he speaks in tongues, what is Paul saying he does? I'm asking you. What, when, when, in the Bible, when you speak in a tongue, what is a tongue? It's a language that someone understands. When Paul says, I speak in tongues more than all of you, he's saying, I can speak in more language than then you walk in. It's estimated that Paul could speak five languages. But, verse 19, in the church, I'd rather speak five intelligible words to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. I could walk into your assembly, says Paul, and wow you with my ability to speak in languages that none of you understand. But I'm not going to do that because when I come into the church, what I want to do is instruct other people. So I'm going to speak in a language that people do understand. And apparently what was going on with our friends in Corinth, just like they abused the Lord's table, they now have this special gift. If you can speak in languages other people cannot understand, that indicates that you have a special gift from God. The more, under, the more it cannot be understood, the more spiritual it is. And Paul's having the right to say, no, tongues are a language that people understand. And you're abusing that. And the entire chapter is about that issue of speaking in languages that other people understand. To restore it to what it was. And so he says things like this, going down to verse 20, uh, 26. Now go back to verse 22. <clears throat> Tongues are for a sign, not for believers, but for unbelievers. Prophecy is for believers, not for unbelievers. 
If the whole church comes together and everyone speaks in tongues and some who do not understand or some unbelievers come in, will they not say you're out of your mind? But if an unbeliever or someone who does not understand comes in while everybody's prophesying, he'll be convinced by all that he's a sinner and will be judged by all. And the secrets of his heart will be laid bare. He'll fall down and worship God, exclaiming, God is really among you. The idea here is speak a message that people understand so that it achieves its purpose, not a language that people do not understand, and you look crazy. Then he goes on. What then shall we say, brothers? When you come together, every one of you has a hymn, verse 26, or a word of instruction, or a revelation, a tongue, an interpretation. All of these must be done for the strengthening of the church. If anyone speaks in a tongue, two or at the most three should speak, one at a time. And someone must interpret. Now, why would there be the potential for the need for an interpreter? Well, you could come into an assembly, let's say, where you've got everybody speaks English. And if somebody came into this assembly and said, I would like to say something to the church, but they speak German, what are they going to have to have? There's got to be at least one person there who speaks both German and English. And if there is no interpreter, if there's no one who speaks both German and English, Paul has instruction for that. Verse 28, if there's no interpreter, the speaker should keep quiet in the church and speak to himself and to God. We don't need your message if we can't understand it. Now, some of you have seen speaking in tongues happen in churches. I grew up with that. Most of you know I grew up Pentecostal. We used to do this all the time. I never did it. But my dad was the pastor. He did. And he spoke in languages that nobody understood. He didn't understand what he was saying. The people in the church didn't understand. So I've seen this happen. I've seen it happen a lot when I was growing up. In the circle I was in, it was always a, an ecstatic utterance, not understood by the hearers and not known even to the speaker. Now, every now and then, someone would stand up and and purport to interpret what was said in gibberish. And they would say it in English. And it would be some message from God. Well, here's the thing. If God's going to give somebody a direct message, I'm just asking, this is just logic, just, just a lot. It's not a biblical argument, it's just a logical argument. If God's going to give somebody a direct message, to a group of people who speak a particular language, like English. What are the odds that he would say, I'm going to give it to you in gibberish, and then I'm going to have somebody else, through a miracle, a, it's a second miracle. I've got two miracles going on. One is I had this person speaking this, this gibberish, they don't understand what they're doing, and now i got a second miracle going on for this person to interpret gibberish to people who speak English. Now God could just do a shortcut with all that. And he could give the person the message in the language the people speak. True? Now again, I'm saying it's not a biblical argument, it's just a logical argument. And I don't find places in Scripture where God does this, and I'm not trying to be facetious, but God does a sort of two-step miracle. You know, when God does a miracle, he does the miracle. There it is. Like he did at Pentecost, Acts chapter 2. So you have the Corinthians apparently speaking like Many of our modern Pentecostal friends and charismatic friends do today, and I've seen it over and over again. In languages that they don't understand, the people don't understand. Sometimes there's an interpreter. We have no earthly idea whether what's being interpreted is actually what was said, because they don't know what was said. We don't know. But most important, it does not comport to what we see here. Now, let me give you one final um, thought from this passage, and then we're out of time. Take a look at um, verse beginning in verse 29. Two or three prophets should speak. The others should weigh carefully what is said. If revelation comes to someone who's sitting down, the first speaker should stop. For you can all prophesy in turn so that everyone may be instructed and encouraged. Now, verse 32. The spirits of prophets are subject to the control of prophets. See, what Paul's arguing for is you can't have this kind of mayhem going on in your church. That's not the way the Spirit works. God is not a God of disorder, but of peace, verse 33. 
There should not be this kind of confusion. Everybody is getting slain in the Spirit. Everybody's getting zapped by the Spirit. Everybody's getting up with a word. Everybody's getting up with a tongue. That's not the way the Spirit operates. We can have some order to this thing. You can go one at a time and carefully weigh what's said. And verse 32 summarizes the, the principle. The spirits of prophets is under the control of prophets. Here's what Paul's saying. The spirit does not grab a hold of somebody and make them do something involuntarily. I mean, is that, isn't that the context? Isn't that what he's saying? You can go in order. Because the Spirit does not just grab you, but rather in an orderly fashion, if the Spirit enables you to do something, He's going to enable you to do that in a way that there is this order to it. Now, that principle, and it is noon, that principle, I would just encourage you to think about this. It goes into an, another area that is not nearly as important as what we've just discussed. Speaking in tongues, that's what it is. A language that people understand. Our friends who are practicing it today most often do not practice it that way. Therefore, they're not even doing what the Bible talks about with regard to tongues. Putting aside the whole issue of whether we need tongues at all. If we all speak English. So, is that a matter of going to heaven or not? No. My dad's in heaven, I believe. He trusted Christ as Savior. I believe I'll see my dad. But he was Pentecostal. And if he were here, we would have a friendly disagreement about about that. Now... Verse 32, the spirits of prophets is under the control of prophets. I just encourage you to think about this. When we come together then to worship, which is what Paul's describing in 1 Corinthians 14, when you come together, all of you have a song, all of you have a revelation, all of you have something you've got to say, but it's got to be orderly. And the spirit of prophets is under the control of prophets. The spirit's not just going to grab you and make you stand up and start spewing. Outside of your control. He's not going to do that, says Paul. How might that relate to the way worship is done in our churches today? I'm not just talking about Pentecostal churches. When you're singing and you're worshiping in song, does the Spirit just grab you in an uncontrollable way such that you have to do particular things? I mean, I just can't help myself. I just have to start dancing. You, you don't want to see that. But you know this is something that goes on in our churches. Our ladies just came back uh, yesterday from a, a conference in Indianapolis that they just had a great time. My wife, just a great time. They were all greatly instructed and edified, and it was a great time. The True Woman Conference. And there was some excellent teaching from the Word, and they're all very glad they went. I'm very glad they went. I've been to these kind of conferences over and over again. You get people from everywhere, all sorts of different understandings. But I go because whoever's going to speak is going to teach me God's word. That's why I go. But almost without exception, they have a time of worship. And the time of worship always means music. Now, worship is music is part of worship, but music is not the sum total of worship, right? But when they say we're going to have a worship time, what they mean is we're going to have music. And when they have the music, you have people who I believe don't understand the principle we just read. The spirit is under the control of the person who has it. That when we're singing, the spirit does not just grab you so that you've got to express yourself your way. And I've got to express myself my way. And so you got five people over here who are dancing. And you got somebody else who's swaying. And you got somebody else with their hands up. And the rest of us are all just sort of doing our thing. Now, I've had discussions with dear friends about this. Again, these are friends. This is not a matter of heaven. It's just difference. And I say, so why do you do that? And they say things like, I feel compelled. The Spirit moves me to do this. And my answer would be from 1 Corinthians 14 and verse 32. And see, friends, the reason that we don't do that is not because it's sinful. It's not because it's going to kill anybody. It's not because... You know, we go to the conference, it's not killing anybody. These people love the Lord. I believe that. I'm not condemning. I'm simply telling you why we don't do that. Because I believe the spirit of prophets is under the control of prophets. Those who have the spirit do not just get zapped to do things. And when we sing, when we worship together, 
you decide with your mind, and I decide with my mind, what I'm going to do and what I'm not going to do. That's the way the Spirit operates, according to 1 Corinthians 14. And it's the reason that when I pray the pastoral prayer, I say at the end, and all of God's people say, do you know why I do that? Because I want to emphasize that we do this together. It's not you having your moment with Jesus, and you having a different moment with Jesus, and you having a dancing moment with Jesus. It's us coming together as God's people in a unified way to do what we do. And I believe that is the tenor of 1 Corinthians 14 with regard to how the Spirit operates. Okay, So I've given you a few issues to think about. One is speaking in tongues. I think we've seen what Scripture teaches about that. And then in turn, translate that into a much lesser issue, admittedly. But one that you should think about. How does the Spirit operate when we are engaged in worship? Okay, Let's pray. We're done. Father, I thank you for these three weeks to be able to consider these issues that are not matters of whether or not we'll be with you in eternity. We thank you for that. We thank you for your mercy to us in Jesus Christ such that we come to him believing who he is and what he did, that we are saved for eternity, that we have an unalterable relationship with you. And even when we're confused, even when we're wrong about something, even when we disagree about some things, we're still brothers and sisters in Christ, and we thank you for that. And so help us to be people who see the differences between those things that are matters of eternity and those things that are simply important because of their connection to things that are first order, or things that affect how we go about serving you in, in our day. Help us to be discerning, thinking people. And as we discern and as we think, help us at the same time to be charitable people with those with whom we, we disagree. Help us this week that we might be able to use what we have learned in order to think it through more thoroughly, in order to communicate it perhaps to someone who might be confused about some of these issues. And may you use this time as impetus for us to, to think about other matters that are first order or second order and, and what your word teaches about them and how we ought to uh, believe and how we ought to behave with regard to them. Go with us this week. May we honor you in all we do. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.